WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. The Milky Way is a galaxy that contains our solar system. With the name describing the galaxy's appearance from Earth, it's a hazy band of light. The Milky Way contains over 200 billion stars, enough dust and gas to make billions more. Today we're here with Adam Kawash, who studies the stars in our galaxy. Adam, can you tell our listeners about your research, please? I study transient stars in the galaxy, meaning stars that brighten by many orders of magnitude and then dim over a period of time. So one example of this is a nova. I study a class of exploding stars called novae, which happens when you have a binary star system. So the sun is a star, but it's by itself. Many stars in our galaxy are in binary systems, which means they have a companion that orbit around each other. And if the two stars are close enough, one star can actually steal matter from another. And if the star steals enough matter onto the surface of the other star, it becomes unstable and you actually get nuclear burning on the surface of the star. So again, the sun burns as nuclear burning on the inside. But if you have a star steal enough matter onto the surface, the surface gets hot enough that this nuclear burning happens on the surface. And what happens is there's this outward pressure and the material is expelled into the galaxy. And we call this event NOVA. And specifically, my research is interested in determining how frequent these events are in the Milky Way galaxy or the galaxy that we live in. Thanks for joining us this morning, Adam. I think it's really interesting how there's actually stars out there that can have other stars orbiting around it. Are the stars that orbit each other in these binary systems the same type, or are there different types of stars that will orbit each other that create these novae? A nova occurs specifically where one star is a white dwarf, and a white dwarf is the stellar remnant of a sun-like star. In about 5 billion years, the sun will run out of fuel, and it'll expel its outer layers out and leave behind its core. We call this core a white dwarf, which burns white hot. That's where it gets its name from. So the sun can never be a nova because it doesn't have a companion star. But if you have a white dwarf with a companion, it can steal material onto the surface of the white dwarf. So a nova specifically only happens when you have a white dwarf in a binary system with another star. So the material from the other star is going onto the white dwarf. Does that overwhelm the white dwarf to the point that it could possibly explode? Yes, yeah, so that's exactly how you get a nova. When the, the surface of the white dwarf gets so much material onto it, the pressure and temperature become so high that you get fusion on the surface. And this leads to this outward pressure and this outflow of material, and the system gets much, much brighter, and then we can actually see it from Earth with telescopes and some novae get so bright that you could go outside and look up and see it with your naked eye. I think it's a really good point that you bring up that these classical novae are observed with telescopes, but how are these classical novae explosions different from other explosions that you might see in the night sky with your telescope? Are there any other particular characteristics that allow you to distinguish the difference between classical novae and other explosions? 
we've been finding exploding stars in the sky for thousands of years. In the almanacs of Chinese astronomers, there's written history of guest stars. And in Europe, there's reports of Stella Nova, which is where we get the term for Nova today. So Stella Nova is Latin for new star. So an exploding star would happen and they would see it in the night sky and they thought it was a new star. But in fact, it's not a new star. It's just a star got much brighter and is now visible from Earth. So Nova is not the only type of star that can explode and become visible from Earth. There's supernovae and there's also things called dwarf novae. There's comets that move in the sky and planets. And to really determine what we're looking at, we need to get a spectrum of the object. And what a spectrum is where you spread out the light from the object in your telescope and you look at the brightness as a function of its wavelength. And the signatures that you see there tell you what the object is made up of. So there's certain elements that are in a nova that aren't in a supernova or, or different types of objects. So to tell what type of object an exploding star in the sky is, we get a spectrum of it and look at what it is made up of. I think that makes a lot of sense. When you're talking about this spectrum, do you mean like the brightness of the star? And do other stellar explosions have different brightnesses as well? When we take a spectrum of an object, we are not looking to determine how bright the object is. We are looking to figure out what the object is made up of. So by spreading out the light, we can see different characteristics that show up at specific wavelengths or colors that tell us what the object is made up of. So if an object has hydrogen in it, it will show up in the spectrum different than if an object has, say, helium or lithium. So novae have specific elements in them that we look for in the spectra that tell us that this thing is indeed a nova. These spectrums sound really useful because they help you identify the specific elements that novae have within them. Okay, Adam, help me picture it. How do these graphs look whenever you're making it with this data? When we look at a spectrum, we are looking at how bright something is as a function of its wavelength or its color. So say if we want to see if an object has hydrogen in it, we will look at the spectrum and if there are dips in the spectrum corresponding to a certain color where we know hydrogen blocks out that light, we can say that that object has hydrogen in it. So when we look at the spectrum of a nova, we know what elements should be there and we look for these certain dips, which helps us determine that what we're looking at is actually a nova. Thanks, Adam. I think that gives our audience a pretty good idea of how people are able to actually distinguish these nova in the sky. The next thing that I'm curious about is why do people care about the rate that these nova are occurring at within our Milky Way? Why is that so important? In a nova, you have certain isotopes that are created that you don't really find elsewhere. So if the nova rate is very high, then novae can contribute significantly to these elements getting recycled throughout the galaxy. But if the nova rate is low, then it might not matter at all. And since we don't have a good grasp on what the nova rate is, we're really not sure how important these events are for recycling these elements throughout the galaxy. It's really important to understand the element distribution across the galaxy. Whenever you're researching this, how are you gathering your data? Are you personally looking at a telescope and gathering the data, or is someone else giving you the data to analyze? 
I use data from a network of automated telescopes around the world as part of a survey called the All Sky Automated Survey for Supernovae, called the Assassin. So as the name implies, this is a survey that is looking for bright supernovae in other galaxies. But in doing this, they observe the whole sky every night. So you can imagine that they find many more interesting things other than supernovae, including novae. I use their data to look for objects in the galaxy that could possibly be novae in the Milky Way galaxy that we could get a spectrum of to confirm them. I've been doing this since about 2017, but interestingly, we really have not found that many novae as we would expect to. And one great thing about this survey is that they observe the whole sky every night automatically and upload their data to the public. To give our listeners a little bit more of a background on Assassin, I wanted to ask, is there someone that does the data analysis of the incoming information from these stellar explosions prior to when you see it? Or are you the one that's determining whether or not a stellar nova is happening? The great thing about Assassin is their image processing is completely automatic. You can imagine because they observe the whole sky every night, there's a ton of data. So this process has to be automated. But what Assassin looks for is bright objects that were not there the night before. And if it does this, it flags this as a candidate for humans to go and follow up. So the automated process produces many candidates that could be Novi in the galaxy. And, and my job is to go vet these candidates to determine if we should go get a spectra of them. It's wonderful that astronomers don't need to spend all night to acquire these images and that it's done completely automatically through the Assassin program. What is the criteria that you use in order to get the spectrum of the data? The sky is full of variable stars. So you can imagine that the system is producing many more candidates than there are novae. Novae are very bright. Even if a nova was on the other side of the galaxy, it would be very bright in the data. If there's a faint object that it produces, it's probably not a nova. Another thing to look at is where in the galaxy the candidate is. We live in a spiral galaxy, and you've probably seen images of spiral galaxies. They're these beautiful whirlpool shapes with spiral arms. And most of the gas and dust and stars are in these spiral arms. And, and that's true for Novi also. Nova is probably going to be closer to the disk of the galaxy than out of the disk. So I'm going to take a much closer look at a candidate that is in the disk of the galaxy or, or in these spiral arms than, say, outside of that. Since you started your research here at Michigan State University, how many classical novae have you discovered using the Assassin program? And what has been the rate of discovering these classical novae on an annual basis been? Assassin is really the first survey to try to observe the whole sky every night. And because of this, when they started taking data of the whole sky in 2016, we thought we would find many more novae than we were previously. But since Assassin has started observing the whole sky, we really haven't found that many more novae. So for about the past 100 years, we've really only been finding about 10 novae per year. And from our best models of how many novae we think we should be finding, 
we think we should be finding about 50 per year. We think we're missing about 80% of the Novi, even with Assassin observing the whole sky every night. And this is really a puzzle that I'm trying to understand. I think it's great that Assassin exists, even though it only came out in 2016. So Adam, we can't exactly see the other side of the galaxy. How are you able to predict the amount of Novi that are occurring on that side? A nova is so bright that we think we should see one even on the other side of the galaxy. One thing that could stop us from seeing one is all the gas and dust in the galaxy. So if you've ever been away from the city at night and looked up in the night sky, you might have seen what looks like a bar that's going across the sky. So this is the gas and dust that is in the galaxy. And unfortunately for us, it blocks the light from Novi that might happen on the other side of the galaxy. So one question I'm trying to figure out is, is there enough dust to block the light from a distant Novi? And this is still an open question. Yeah, I don't think people really understand just how much dust there really is out in the Milky Way galaxy. For example, whenever I've participated in local astronomy nights, sometimes they'll point their telescopes at these objects called dark nebula, where they're just these big blobs of dust that look like points in the sky where stars just weren't included in, but it's actually just so much dust that the light from those stars are blocked completely, and you just can't see anything. So I can understand how it makes it difficult to detect the light coming from a classical nova happening, for example, on the other side of the galaxy. As you mentioned earlier, a group of telescopes look over the night sky every single night and record data for people to analyze afterwards. Before that, though, what were people using to identify classical novae back in the night sky? Were there programs that were similar to Assassin, or was it something more localized to different research groups? So before Assassin started taking data, we almost exclusively relied on amateur astronomers to find NOVA candidates for us. So these are people with different day jobs not related to astronomy that just have interests in astronomy with telescopes that will go out to dark fields and look for bright stars that were not there the night before. And then if they find one, they alert the community that we can then go and get a spectrum of to confirm it as a NOVA. And in fact, even with Assassin observing the whole sky every night now, amateur astronomers still find most of the Novi that we know about. So this is really just testament about how good these people are at finding new objects in the sky. And we really owe most of our ability to do research to them for finding these objects for us to study. It's great to hear the impact that citizens are making on astronomy. And it really is a testament that they do find most of the Novi that astronomers know about. This really is a wonderful form of citizen science. How can people who are interested in identifying classical novae get involved with a project like this? So there's an organization called the American Association of Variable Star Observers, and they train people to observe and submit observations of stars all over the sky, including novae, that then astronomers can go and use as part of their research. For example, the project I'm working on right now, I'm using observations from these observers that I'm going to publish in a scientific journal. If you're interested in observing the night sky and maybe publishing some of your observations, you can go to aavso.org and they have resources there that teach you how to observe these stars and become involved. Thanks for sharing that information with us, Adam. Are there any other local ways that people can get involved with astronomy programs happening at Michigan State University's campus, for example? 
So unfortunately, most of the public events that we have at the planetarium or the MSU campus observatory are probably going to be canceled for the foreseeable future in 2020 due to social distancing. But there still are some great virtual events going on. The planetarium is still doing virtual events, and I would check their Facebook page if you're interested in those. There are also local astronomy on tap events that happen at the loft in downtown Lansing. These are monthly events, but unfortunately this year, these will also not be happening due to social distancing. There still are virtual events that happen monthly. And I would check their Twitter or Facebook page for those. So even though we can't meet in person to talk about astronomy, there's still some great virtual events going on. Hopefully Chelsea and I will get to see you at any of these future events that will take place once the COVID-19 pandemic has calmed down. And thanks for coming today to talk to us about your research on classical Novi. Thanks for having me. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes for Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Sophie Sagan, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandron, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. This show, as well as the entire Impact 89FM podcast lineup, can be found online at impact89fm.org or by searching for The Sci-Files on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on The Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at sci-files at impact89fm.org. See you next week on The Sci-Files. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.